Good morning. Welcome again to our online service here at South Suburban Christian Church. Uh, I want to welcome you, to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to join us here if you're on our online.church platform, uh, or if you're watching by YouTube or listening to us uh, through our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for joining us today, especially as we're entering now fully into the season called Advent, which we have talked about. Uh, Advent means the coming or the arrival. Uh, if you've never heard of Advent before, we encourage you to go to our YouTube channel, and there you can listen to a three-part series called Advent for Dummies, which talks a little bit about uh, what Advent is, why the church celebrates it, and how it might help you, your family, uh, as we enter into this season of waiting. And we all know about waiting in the midst of this pandemic, don't we? Uh, some good news on the horizon we hear in our news, and we pray uh, that uh, soon the vaccines will be widely distributed and that we will finally be able to uh, uh, come back together again. I'm looking forward to being back together again uh, as a church, as we worship together. Uh, one epidemiologist that I listened to uh, on the morning news said that uh, the speed in which this vaccine was developed uh, the success of the vaccine is nothing short of a miracle. I love it when I hear that kind of language coming from the scientific community because you, uh, my family, all of us have been praying for God to be working in the midst of this and uh, inspiring scientists and researchers uh, purging our planet uh, of this virus. And yet in the midst of it, God has been using it to teach us things, teach us how we can deploy as the church of Jesus Christ, teaching us the importance of true, uh, deep spiritual connections uh, with one another, with our neighbors, pushing us to, to be with our neighbors and, and to find ways to, to settle in ourselves and settle with our family as we look at how we practice our faith authentically, transparently, uh, and for God's glory. So, we are now in the second Sunday of Advent, uh, often ca called Advent 2 for the second Sunday. And we're uh, spending this uh, Advent season in Luke chapter 1. I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 1 beginning in verse 26 uh, and just going through verse 34 today. Although the fullness of this chapter is Luke 1, 26 through 58, if you'd like to make that a daily uh, discipline in your own devotions. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 1. It's the third gospel in your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever." And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? 
Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and his understanding to it. Amen. Last week, Pastor Joe kicked off our Advent series where we will be looking at Luke 1, 26 through about 56 to 58. Or you might just say this is Luke's version of the call of Mary to bear the Christ child. He looks specifically at the Annunciation, the, the, the uh, painting that is coming up on your screen right now is uh, Da Vinci's version of the Annunciation. Uh, the word Annunciation is just the traditional term given to the moment when the angel Gabriel announces to Mary that she has been called to give birth to the Messiah. Now, through the centuries, art has been a powerful tool through which the story of the Bible has been told. In the Middle Ages, uh, great cathedrals were being built. Uh, it was a time when not everyone was able to read, and even those who were able to read didn't necessarily have a copy of the whole Bible. Some churches in some parts of, of Europe and the British Isles would be lucky to just have one book of the Bible that they could read from on uh, the, the days they gathered on Sunday and, and other days. And so the church would use other ways to tell the stories of the Bible. Uh, stained glass, uh, paintings, icons, and all of these things would be pointed to by the pastors and preachers as uh, they, they might point to the stained glass window of a, of a scene from Scripture or to a painting of a scene from Scripture, and they would tell that old, old story again. In many ways, you could say that uh, these paintings, the stained glass, uh, were sort of the old version of the, the modern-day screens that we might have in our sanctuaries today. Uh, they, they were the digital screens of the Middle Ages. Now, many of these paintings portrayed Mary and other Bible characters as modern people within their own time. So Mary and Joseph would have been dressed like people would have dressed in the Middle Ages. Uh, they would have been in buildings that would have been common in the Middle Ages. So uh, the painters would have replicated uh, the apparel, the architecture, and, and, and even some of the, 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 the implements, uh, tableware, uh, the inventions that would not have been around during the time of Jesus but would have been very common in the Middle Ages. Sort of like the painting that's up on your screen now. And if you look at this painting, it can be a bit jarring, can't it? Because here we have uh, the Holy Family cast as uh, modern-day teenagers, perhaps homeless. It can be a little jarring to the senses. But this is what art does. It provokes us to think. It provokes us to feel. It, it, it pushes us to consider the real-life impact of a situation. On December 15th, uh, at 6 p.m., I'll be leading an evening Zoom study on the history of the nativity and art. Now, if you want to sign up for this uh, special study during our Advent preparation, uh, we encourage you to go to our website uh, to register uh, so that you might receive a Zoom invite. And uh, for an hour, we'll go through from the time uh, of the early church all the way through the contemporary age as we look at how the nativity and the paintings which relate to the birth of Christ uh, have developed over the centuries, what they were intending to teach, and how they might help us consider and think about uh, this holiday, this holy day in our modern-day world. As we enter into the Luke chapter 1 text, I want to take just a brief moment to clarify some definitions, some things that I hear each year that I think is helpful just to just to kind of get out on the table so that we all understand what terms are and what we're thinking about. 
Some folks banter around this idea of the virgin birth and the immaculate conception as if they're the same thing. Uh, They're not. As a matter of fact, the immaculate conception has absolutely nothing to do with the virgin birth. The immaculate conception is now a dogma of the Roman Catholic Church uh, that says that Mary was conceived without the stain of original sin. So uh, it's a relatively recent dogma, even though parts of it has been around for centuries. It wasn't made dogma in the Roman Church until 1854, uh, and many bishops even at that time in the Roman Church didn't agree with it. Uh, But it says that Mary, being unstained from original sin, was not in need of redemption. And and there's a whole host of reasons why, why they do that. Incidentally, the Roman Catholics are the only group of Christians that believe in the Immaculate Conception. Protestants, of course, generally don't believe in that. Neither do the Eastern Orthodox Church, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Syriac, uh, um, those that are traditionally founded in Eastern countries from the Middle East on. Uh, Now, the virgin birth, however, is a doctrine that's accepted by all Christians, Protestant, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and it is the teaching that Jesus was born to Mary, who was a virgin, and was therefore conceived by God the Holy Spirit. It is about Jesus, not about Mary. The Immaculate Conception is about Mary. As we approach the holidays, especially uh, as many of us have experienced the holidays over the past couple of decades, This is always the time that the shows and the news stories begin to make their way through the various media outlets that begin to focus on the virgin birth. And they tell us that it is one of those peculiar Christian doctrines that everybody knows isn't true. It's obviously a myth because obviously babies are not born to virgins. It's not naturally possible. (laughs) Well, of course it's not naturally possible. That's why we call it supernatural. It is a miracle. The first point that I want to share with you this morning about the virgin birth as we look at that phrase that Mary utters to the angel, even in her own disbelief, how can this happen? For I am a virgin. You see, the virgin birth is supernatural, but it is not mythical. Many detractors will point to the passage that's found in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. You might want to write that down. It's a famous verse from Isaiah that uh, we Christians look at and, and recall as a promise of the coming of the Messiah. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign, Isaiah writes. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, the word in the original Hebrew language uh, for that English word virgin is the Hebrew word Alma. And Alma is truly a word in Hebrew that is best translated young woman. Uh, it's not necessarily translated virgin. Now, stay with me. Don't turn, don't turn the computer off yet. Just hang tight with me for a few more minutes. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, 
And uh, I'm not really sure that the translation of the Hebrew word Alma to young woman necessarily negates Mary's virginity. But I do have a very good friend who is a Hebrew scholar. As a matter of fact, he's one of the world's leading authorities on the study of the Exodus and the uh, archaeological evidences of the, uh, of the Exodus. Uh, himself, uh, an Anglican, teaching at a Baptist college. And he would say to us that even though this word Alma is a word that is generally translated young woman, that it is a rare word. Matter of fact, it's only mentioned in your Hebrew Bible seven times. And that even though it does signify uh, a translation young woman, it really would be best translated maiden or unmarried maiden. And so therefore, even though the word Alma focuses more on youth rather than virginity, it doesn't necessarily negate the idea that she was a virgin because in Hebrew culture, since she was not married, she would therefore be a virgin. The spiritual and moral ethos in Hebrew culture assumed that young, unmarried girls had no sexual experience. As a matter of fact, that would have been the, the moral ethos and spiritual ethos for young boys as well in the Hebrew culture. So it was assumed that an Alma, a young woman, was a virgin. Now, I think it's also important to remember, a very important thing to remember, that the Bible that most Jews used during the reign of the Roman Empire, most of the Jews, that they would have read something called the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, done by 70 scholars, and there is some debate of whether or not that was 72. We can talk about that another day. But here's the thing that you need to remember, two important points. Number one, the Septuagint was translated in the 3rd century B.C., 300 years before the birth of Christ. And when they translate that Hebrew word Alma to the Greek, they translate it to the Greek word Parthenos, which also means young woman, a maiden, but it means a young woman whom no man has known. That is, the Hebrew scholars translated that Hebrew word, Alma, young woman, to the Greek, which would have carried the understanding of her being a virgin. So what's that mean? That means in the centuries before Christ uh, was born, up until the first century, and even in the years after that, the Jews themselves, as they were thinking about this prophecy, were thinking that the woman who would bear God with us, Emmanuel, would indeed be a young, unmarried virgin. Now, I also want you to remember this, that the gospel that we're reading, the gospel of Luke, is a gospel written by Luke who was a physician. Now, no doubt that medicine has come a long way in the last 2,000 years, but I'm pretty sure that you'll agree with me that the discovery that virgins don't typically have babies isn't something new. This is something that has been known for centuries and centuries, and that you didn't necessarily need to be a physician to know that truth. In Luke chapter 2, verse 19, Luke, the physician, writes that Mary, after the shepherds had departed, quote, 
treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems reasonable to me that Luke may have actually conferred with Mary. He would have known Mary. He may have had long and deep conversations with Mary. And, and before he wrote those words, it seems reasonable to me that he would have actually met with Mary to confirm Mary's version of the story and that he believed her account that she conceived Jesus before she ever knew a man. There is a noted Anglican theologian and bishop, N.T. Wright. Many of you may have heard him. He uh, observes, First century folk knew every bit as well as we do that babies are produced by the coming together of a man and a woman. When in Matthew's version of the story, Joseph heard about Mary's pregnancy, his problem arose not because he didn't know the facts of life, but because he did. That is, Joseph knew that if Mary was pregnant, it must have been because she stepped out on him. Until the angel comes and reveals to Joseph as well the miraculousness, the supernatural uh, circumstances of this birth. There's a great Scottish theologian, Donald McLeod, who I have a great deal of, of uh, respect for. In his book, The Person of Christ, he writes this. The virgin birth is posted on guard at the door of the mystery of Christmas, and none of us must think of hurrying past it. It stands on the threshold of the New Testament, blatantly supernatural, defying our rationalism, informing us that all that follows belongs to the same order as itself, and that if we find it offensive, if we find the virgin birth offensive, then there's no point in proceeding further. Well, what does he mean by that? This is what he's saying. If we are to believe that Jesus healed the sick, if we are to believe that Jesus raised the dead, the story of Lazarus, if we are to believe that Jesus gave sight to the blind man by rubbing some spittle and mud in his eyes, if we are to believe that Jesus was able to cure lepers, if we are to believe that Jesus was able to cast out demons, if we are to believe that Jesus himself was raised from the dead, and the account of the virgin birth is not strange. It's merely a foreshadowing of the supernatural and miraculous life and ministry of Jesus that is going to blow our minds. So, if you're ready to go past the virgin birth into the life and ministry of Jesus, our recommendation to you is to buckle up and get ready for the ride. Now, here what's, here's what's really ironic to me. In recent surveys of the American people, uh, 80% of Americans, not just Christian Americans, but 80% of all Americans believe in the virgin birth. That's astonishing. And 27% of non-Christians, 27%, almost 30% of people who don't want to be Christians and don't want to be called Christians, they even affirm the doctrine of the virgin birth. Even more amazing is, is that even in the Islamic faith, even though they may deny the divinity of Christ, they deny his actual crucifixion, which we've talked about before, a major tenet of the Islamic faith is the virgin birth of Jesus to Mary. But what is the significance of the virgin birth? Well, here's where we're going to go even a little bit deeper into why this is important. Point two. The virgin birth is the sign of God's sovereign act to redeem humanity 
that cannot save itself. The virgin birth is the sign of God's sovereign act to redeem humanity that cannot save itself. As I've already said, we have a supernatural act here that ushers God into flesh, as John chapter 1 teaches. As a matter of fact, we actually have two supernatural events that sort of bookend the life of Jesus. At the beginning of his life, there's the virgin birth, and at the end of his life, there's the glorious bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, the supernatural resurrection and ascension where he now sits at the right hand of God the Father. This supernatural aspect that is all too common in the life of Christ is a testimony to Jesus' authenticity as the one who has been sent by God the Father to redeem the world. And it is this redemption that reminds us of our own brokenness, our own rebellion, our own sin that is in need of redeeming that we ourselves can't do anything about by ourselves or through ourselves. The idea that the human race cannot produce its own Redeemer is a deep sign of the helplessness, of the guilt, of the hopelessness of the human race apart from God's supernatural intervention into His own creation. The virgin birth reminds us of the profound separation between us and God. The profound loneliness that we experience without God in our lives. The profound helplessness of trying to find truth and meaning without God. And that it is God who decides to build the bridge to us. It's God who overcomes the chasm of separation Because we couldn't get to Him, He has come to us in a supernatural and powerful way. Reminds me of what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, that Jesus, quote, emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And yet, the virgin birth also displays that God's will was to unite the human and the divine, so that Jesus is fully human and He is also fully divine. He is the Son of God, and He is God the Son. Wayne Grudem is a contemporary theologian, very well known among many, I think. He puts it this way, God, in His wisdom, ordained a combination of human and divine influence in the birth of Christ so that His full humanity would be evident to us from the fact of His ordinary human birth from a human mother, And his full deity would be evident from the fact of his conception in Mary's womb by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. And finally, for this point, at most powerful in my opinion, I think, the virgin birth is a clear sign that God is sovereign 
That is that God is all-powerful, omnipotent. That God is the initiator of this plan of redemption. Now, now, now think about this. The angel didn't ask Mary if she would be willing to do this. He didn't question her, would you be willing to accept this invitation from God to conceive the Messiah? No. The Bible's clear what happens in chapter 1, verse 31. The angel announces, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, this might not sit well for a lot of us. God didn't ask Mary for permission to do this. He acted. He acted gently, but he acted decisively to save his people from their sins. Remember Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. I've shared with you before that in my own spiritual walk, true freedom, a true sense of joy, a true sense of, con of contentment only came into my life when I fully surrendered to God's will for my life. Man, man that's hard for all of us. That, that, that's hard for us to think about that, that true freedom comes with full surrender but it's in full surrender that we find ourselves not in the care of the powers of darkness who would seek to hurt us and damage us and condemn us we find ourselves in the hands of a loving and gracious god who wants the best for us and through us works his perfect will to the glory of his name for the redemption of the world first through mary's womb in the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, the Son of God, and now through His church. Not, not the buildings, not the institutions, not the organizations, but those of us who have been lowered into the waters of baptism, raised again, who have called upon Christ as our Lord and Savior, the people. Through us corporately as a church, and through you personally as a believer, as you fulfill God's will in your own life. God has called us to be witnesses. God has called us to be evangelists. God has called us to minister and serve to our neighbors. I don't want any emails here, but necessarily don't want any emails. But one of the things this pandemic has done, it has confronted God's people with the call to be light to our neighbors. Relationships that I might have never had with my neighbors, with people that I run into, because of this sense of, of, of longing for fellowship. Every time we come into contact with somebody, we're looking for a connection. And it's been in those moments, because of that context, that the Holy Spirit has been able to use you, use me, to be light in people's lives. And this has been a time, as difficult as it has been, this has been a time that the church of Jesus Christ has been able to shine, has been able to, to raise itself up, 
and not identify itself because of its beautiful music or, or it, 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 it's, its wonderful preachers or its architecture, but it's been able to distinguish itself because the believer has been an extension of God's grace to our neighbors and to our co-workers. It's allowed us to be peacemakers. Point three. We, that is Christians, teach the virgin birth. We believe in the virgin birth. But the real miracle is that God has taken upon Himself human flesh. On the website of South Suburban Christian Church, you go to southsuburban.com, click on the button, What We Believe. As the members of this congregation, uh, you have sought to summarize what we believe to be the biblical witness. I want to read to you what we've published on our website. We believe Jesus was born from a virgin, led a life without sin, was crucified on a cross, and rose from the dead. Jesus is both true God and true man. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now, we in the Christian church are an intensely Bible-focused people. We want to use Bible names for pretty much everything. We generally refer to Mary as the mother of our Lord instead of the more common Mary, the mother of God. Now, in the year 431 A.D., at the Council of Ephesus, the church declared Mary to be Theotokos, which is Greek for the God-bearer or the mother of God. Theo, God, Tokos, the one who bears, the mother of God. Now, we don't want to necessarily argue about this, but what we are more likely to use is the declaration from Scripture when Elizabeth says in chapter 1, verse 43 of the Gospel of Luke, And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now listen, the virgin birth, as we're studying here in Luke chapter 1, is not an end unto itself. Rather, it is the way that God clothed himself with flesh. It is the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit that conceives God made flesh in the womb of Mary. Joe Jones is a Christian church pastor and professor, retired now, of systematic theology at Christian Theological Seminary. He was a preeminent influence in my own studies as I was doing my own doctorate. He writes, Mary is graciously elected I love the way he says that. Mary is graciously elected and empowered to be the mother of the eternal Son. You see, it is through the coming together of a human mother and the power of the divine Holy Spirit that the eternal Son is made incarnate. Incarnation. Incarnate. In flesh. You see, Professor Jones says the event is a miracle and transcends rational or scientific thought. That's what it's intended to be, is a miracle. So that we would know completely that the impossible work that is about to be done 
in this person known as Jesus is from God. God the Holy Spirit. God the Father. God the Son coming together to redeem humanity. It is the miracle that this is something so out of line with our human experience that it must be from God. Now, now let me bring this on home. <laughs> We've done a lot of teaching today, haven't we? Lots of digging into God's Word, loving God with our mind today, as well as our heart. But I want to appeal a little bit more as we close this morning to your heart. As I've gotten to know Pastor Darrell, the former senior pastor here at South Suburban Church, as I have met and gotten to know the other pastors that have been significant leaders in this congregation throughout your history, as I have grown to love and work with Pastor Joe, the elders, the deacons of this congregation that you have elected to serve, all of those whom you have called into leadership and service in this place, whether they be small group leaders, Sunday school teachers, there's a common thread among all of us. We are always looking to embark on those things that are so big that we have to rely on God to see them through, to see them to fruition. Now, you've done this time and time again as a congregation in your outreach, in your planning, in your stewardship, your ministries. This is a church that sees this pandemic as beyond human control, which is fine with us because we never suffered under the illusion that anything is in our control to begin with. And it is that corporate, it is that whole church ethos that we share together, the way we live our life together as a church, that I want to encourage you today. I want you to grab a hold and your personal life. What is God calling you? You to do. Is it something so big, so scary, so beyond your own wisdom that you will need God to see it through? May I suggest to you that that is a sure sign, I think, that God is calling you to do it. Now listen, we all find ourselves in moments of despair. We all find ourselves living in fear. As, as we have said on several occasions, it seems like the darkness comes sooner and the light of the new sun arrives later each day. And when that sun sets and we're in a house, some of you alone, some of you not having seen your parents, your grandparents, your family members for months and months and months except through a computer screen, that the despair and the fear and the foreboding of the darkness can overwhelm us. That's what Advent is. It's an awareness that darkness is real, that despair the loss of hope is a very real human experience. But what Christmas reminds us is that in a moment when shepherds are, 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 are in the fields and, and the cold and the darkness caring for their flock, God bursts on the scene with a brilliant light and choirs of angels announcing the coming of the Messiah. The story of Christmas reminds us that in the the solitude of a manger, of a stable, when we have been cast out of 
home and family and forced to travel to strange lands. Uh, Mary and Joseph from their hometown of Nazareth to the city of Bethlehem where they know no one forced upon them by government rule. No mother to be by her side as she gives birth to her first child. No one believing her. And in the stillness and quietness of that holy night, as she cries out with the contractions and pain, suddenly the light of the world bursts forth from her own body and she holds the Lamb of God in her arms. The season of Christmas reminds us that far off in a desert somewhere, three magi are making their way, following a star that will take them years to finally arrive. Now, not at the manger, but at the home where the child is, where they present to this King of Kings and this Lord of Lords gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Christmas reminds us that hope occurs in the midst of darkness and loneliness. And that hope is what overpowers all of that. Because hope in Christ is never disappointed. And as we sit in these days of Advent, no matter whether we're able to gather in the parking lot, as we will do here on Christmas Eve, or whether we have to stay in our rooms, the celebration of the day when the light of the world burst forth will come. And because we are stubborn Christians who have tenaciously held on to the truthfulness and validity of the gospel, we know we will not be overwhelmed by this despair. We will not be overwhelmed by this darkness because our Lord has already won the victory. 2,000 years ago when He threw off the chains of death and walked out of a tomb and sits now in glory as we wait today for His second advent, His coming again. Listen, some of you might think that the only way I'm going to get through this season is if God does it for me. Challenge, accept it, says the hosts of heaven. Hold on to Christ this day. And be encouraged that if your grip begins to tire and you feel yourselves letting go, the virgin birth reminds us that it wasn't us who made our way to God. It was God who made His way to us. And the virgin birth reminds us that God will never let go of us. If you haven't made Jesus Christ Lord of your life, would you do that today? Say yes to this question. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and do you accept Him as your Lord and Savior? If you've done that today, will you click on the button if you're on our online.church platform or if you're listening or watching on one of our other platforms, will you send us an email at office at southsuburban.com? We want to connect with you. Whether you're local, around the nation, or across the sea, we want to join with you in prayer and encourage you for the glory of God as the light of Christmas will soon appear. Will you pray with me? O oh Lord, as we make our ways through these dark evenings, we know that the light is coming. We know that the light is here. 
And we know that that light will never let go of us. In Jesus' name, amen.